The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Eamon Javers, in for Kelly Evans today, and here's what's ahead. Today's weekly jobs data showing the labor market may not be cooling fast enough for the Fed to take its foot off the gas. The Dow down more than 400 points. As a result, the big question, will we see the same in the June jobs report out tomorrow? And if the answer there is yes, how many more hikes could be ahead, and how are you going to position yourself in the markets right now? Plus, it's not a new dawn, but it's maybe all about damage control. That's how one of our guests describes Janet Yellen's trip to China this week. He joins us with what he's watching on her visit as tensions between the U.S. and China remain high. And speaking of China, Tesla and its Chinese rivals signing a truce to end price wars in the world's biggest EV market. But is there an ulterior motive? to Musk's move here. That's ahead, but we begin with today's markets, and Dom Chu is here with the numbers. Dom, what's going on out there? 400 points right now, as you point out, but at the lows of the session, Eamon, we were down north of 500 on the Dow, so we are off our worst levels of the session right now. I'll give you an idea of what's going on right here. The Dow Industrials, as I point out, 417 points to the downside, off a one and and a quarter percent, 33,871. The S&P trying to hold above the 4,400 mark, 4,406, the current level. We're down about 1%, 40 points to the downside, and to give you an idea of the trading range so far today, at the highs of the session, we were still down 24 points, down 61 at the lows. So, again, towards the lower end of that range, but still well off of those worst levels of the session. The Nasdaq composite off about 1% as well, 135 points to the downside, 13,657 the last trade there. From a macro perspective, Eamon spoke a little bit about the rate worries, about what's happening with inflation and jobs and everything else and what that could mean for a hike in interest rates. Well, that's taking some of the steam out of WTI crude prices. They are now actually tilting just slightly positive. They've been negative for the pretty much the entire session as worries just about the economic condition of the world right now really keeps oil in a range-bound area, just around 70 bucks a barrel. We'll keep a close eye on those crude oil prices. And then if you take a look at the interest rate picture, we saw a breakout above 4% for the 10-year note yield, above 5% for the two-year note yield. We're still there, so it's higher in terms of rates across the board. The two-year, 10-year spread, which shows that inversion, right? It's now at about 98 basis points overall. We are still hovering near some of the most inverted levels over the course of the last year, and even to that, going back decades. So that's something to watch. And by the way, that interest rate complex is leading to some severe underperformance in key parts of the financial world, specifically the regional banks. If you take a look at some of those names, take a look at Bank of Hawaii, Comerica, U.S. Bank and others. Intraday so far, all off around two and a half to five percent. Some of the biggest laggards, concerns about the economy, what it means for commercial real estate, lending and everything else. Amen. Watch those regional banks. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, regional banks and commercial real estate. Absolutely. Dom, thanks for that. Now let's get right to this morning's jobs data that tanked the market. Steve Leisman is here with uh, to break down these numbers. And Steve, this was a blockbuster number, right? So that's good, right or not? Um, you got to get with the program. Right. Amen. We're not we're, we're, we're we want jobs not to happen. No, we do want jobs. We want strong jobs. It's, we want strong wages. It feels mor- morally weird but we to root against it, the jobs market, it's doesn't It's morally it? weird, but we also want 
the Fed to stop hiking and not cause a recession. Yep. Here's what happened. Strong jobs and service sector data combined with hawkish Fed talk prompted the street to rethink its outlook for rate hikes, push down stocks and raising bond yields. ADP, private sector payroll growth, as Eamon said, more than double the estimate at 497. Could be an outlier, but does confirm some high-frequency data we reported yesterday, suggesting a strong jobs report on the way tomorrow morning. The service sector and education health services drove the hiring. Jobless claims were higher, but not much higher, and not much of an increase so far in continuing claims. That suggests those who lose work and apply for claims are pretty quickly finding work. ISM service index, meeting expectations, and the employment component of that index growing as well. All this raises questions. Is that 240,000 mark yesterday with the Wall Street estimate for the jobs report, could it be on the weak side and whether the market should be thinking more like the Fed does about two more hikes this year? Here are the probabilities. Dom just showed you got to pay attention what it meant for interest rates. Here's what it means in the Fed funds futures market. You can see there about an 80, 90 percent probability of a hike in July. But that second hike, creeping up for some possibility, almost 30% for uh, September, and then more getting closer to the 50% mark for the November hike. Meanwhile, New Dallas Fed President Lori Logan making some very hawkish remarks, saying the Fed ought to hike again. And what she did was dismiss factors like the lagged effects of prior rate hikes and tightening banking credit standards that some thought might have stayed the Fed's hands. Those are not big issues right now. Eamon, I'm going to chance tomorrow morning to talk about all this with Austin Goolsby, the Chicago Fed president, will have him on exclusively tomorrow morning uh, at 1130. That's going to be a great conversation, Steve. I'm definitely going to tune into that one. Stick around here, though, meanwhile, uh, for another view on the job market. Let's bring in someone who has a front row seat to labor trends. That's Recruiter.com chairman Evan Sohn. Evan, uh, one of the trends that caught our eye in your latest report is that applicant volume and wages remain stagnant in June, which is a good thing in the fight against inflation, right? Uh, absolutely. You know, sentiment was down in the recruiter sentiment, uh, but we saw applications either increasing. 33% actually saw applications increasing. We're seeing compensation still be number one reason, and we're seeing compensation actually increasing. Why is that? What's driving the compensation increase? I ask as someone who you know has uh, it's, a salary. It's got, <laughs> it's got to be uh, that people are looking for jobs that pay more money. We think people are worried about the recession, they're worried about the economy, they're worried about inflation, uh, and they're worried about uh, uh, increasing uh, interest rates. Uh, Therefore, they're taking jobs that actually pay more money. Uh, We saw this before, we saw this at the beginning of the pandemic, sort of people actually having uh, potentially two jobs, uh, two full-time jobs. Uh, And if you look at the job market, 4 million people still quit uh, in May, and uh, 6.2 million people were hired. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fluctuation going on in the job market itself. And I think people are looking for where they're getting uh, paid more money. I, I you know, love that idea. Ago, remote work is actually. The, yeah, I sorry, love that know? idea about people having two jobs. I can't even ha- handle one job, let alone imagining doing two <laughs> jobs working from home. And I wonder if based on what you're saying, you know, the great recession, uh, the great quitting that we've seen over the past couple of years. Is that over? Are people now looking for work and looking for high salaries? And we're back to sort of where we were pre-COVID back into a, quote, old normal? Uh, so I, I, we think that that's never actually going to return to the old normal. Um, the, the quit rates are actually higher than they were on the average of 2019. And actually, if you look at the BLS numbers, uh, they were up in, in May. Uh, so up April, uh, March, April, May, consecutively up over 4 million people quit their jobs in May. Uh, so why are they quitting? Uh, they're looking for a better opportunity. Uh, they're looking for more uh, the more compensation. 
yet, if you look at last month's labor numbers, uh, the participation rate stayed the same. The uh, the unemployment numbers went up, but more jobs, were, more people were actually taking jobs, or there were more jobs created. And maybe that's that's actually seeing this return to uh, people carrying uh, two full time jobs. And again, you know, these are across uh, the sectors. And we look at the recruiter index, uh, and it's really in the sub one hundred thousand dollars salary mark where we're seeing uh, more participation and more opportunity. Steve, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, here. I mean, there's a question as to whether or not these wages are driving inflation or are they chasing inflation? That's what I was going to I don't know if Evan has data on that, but to me it seems like you have people trying to get wages that are commensurate with their increase in cost. So it doesn't right. strike me that that is actually the driver or the cause of inflation. You may get to that point eventually. The other issue... But as an employee, it feels like your dollar just isn't going as far. It definitely because even isn't. though inflation it might be tempering isn't. now, right. you're, you've eaten that inflation over the past right. year. And what, what would be nice would be to keep those 4 or 5% annual wages and have inflation come down more than that. Then you would be getting real wage gains. The other thing that I keep driving home about, I don't again, if Evan wants to... Uh, talk about this is if the inflation problem, as Powell suggests, is in the service sector, the only supply the service sector provides is labor. OK, maybe there are some paper clips. Maybe there are some <laughs> post-it notes. Right. Uh, obviously, there's software, but that doesn't cost anything. None of that's the only thing that really costs. So, so it strikes me when I look at the ADP numbers today and I see a surge in, in hiring for leisure and hospitality. I see more restaurants open. I see more workers in the airlines. I see the possibility for inflation to attenuate as a result of labor and hiring. So rather than being our enemy in both cases, I think labor is our friend when it comes to inflation. That's fascinating. What Evan, do you think this, yeah. Am I crazy? Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I don't think so. You, you look at the healthcare sector, right. and we—that's uh, the number one sector again. It actually up 19 percent according to the Recruiter Index, and our, according to our partners over at Aura, uh, the actual jobs themselves—27 20, percent uh, of those open jobs in healthcare are for nurses. Nurses, 27 percent of the healthcare jobs are nurses, and only three percent being uh, for physicians and another 3% for call center or customer service operations that could be outsourced. Uh, so again, in-person jobs, in the healthcare sector, in that sub, let's call it, you know, not the, uh, not the highest level salary roles, uh, but in, in those, uh, in, in the nursing roles, representing a very large share of that healthcare marketplace. That's fascinating. My takeaway from this conversation is that I need to get a second job somewhere along the way to fight back against that this That probably inflation. should have happened long ago, yeah, uh, Amy. Maybe. But the thing is that now you can feel morally good about hiring. See how we got there? See, we came full circle. We I like want the way to you hire stuck to bring down this inflation. Conversation, did that for you, you, Amy. Uh, Evan Sohn and Steve Leisman, uh, thank you both. Fascinating stuff. A second job for me. Uh, that's stronger than expected data today, pressuring the market with equities falling and yields rising on fears of more Fed rate hikes. The dynamic has investors once again asking where to look for value, as always. My next guest manages a Morningstar five-star rated fund up nearly 10% this year with Meta, Comcast, and Exxon as some of the top holdings. But he's also looking abroad for value in markets that have been written off by investors for years. So joining me now is Matt McLennan, First Eagle Global's value team lead manager. Matt, uh, give me a sense of where you look when you look abroad for value right now. So much talk about the China conversation, but is that where you're looking? 
Well, we, we look broadly across all markets. If you look at the global portfolio, um, roughly half of our equities are in the United States, but the other half are outside the United States. And that's across Asia, Europe, and Latin America. So uh, we really do look broadly. And I think one of the things that um, is important to notice is that the U.S. equity market has been pricing a return to normal. You know, multiples went back to 20 times earnings. Uh, implied volatility went down to the low teens as a percent. Uh, so risk perception had moderated. Trading breadth uh, was wide. And we'd seen the reemergence of uh, narrative stories like the AI story propelling stocks. Yeah. Meanwhile, outside the United States, where we've seen quite a different picture. Um, you referenced the Chinese equity market. Um, it's been trading uh, at only about 10 times its trailing peak level of earnings, so at about half the valuation. And markets like Japan uh, that people have written off uh, over the last couple of decades have really been quite firm and still only traded um, mid-teens multiples of earnings. And, and I'll point out that um, we've seen some encouraging changes with respect to corporate governance in Japan. Dividend payout ratios are on the rise there. That's fascinating. Let's go back to the domestic market for a second, though. One of your big holdings is Meta. I wonder what you think about the launch of Threads last night. So much attention in the general media, so much attention in the business media. A lot of us have been typing away furiously. I'm on there, uh, as are a lot of folks here at CNBC. What do you think that does for Meta, that product? Is, is that going to move the bottom line for that company? Well, well, Meta has an enormous amount of enterprise value. So, um, expanding the reach of Instagram is, is not going to totally change the economics of the business, but it is um, an example of um, the what I would call the concentricity uh, optionality in uh, a business like Meta, where you have a, a dominant network, uh, you have the ability to layer upon additional services and monetize your existing platform over time. And you know, while we have our worries about the United States uh, equity market as a whole, uh, our stock selection is really happening one security at a time. And we're looking for these kinds of situations where you have entrenched market share uh, and some form of latency in the business long term. It's not so long ago Meta was trading at less than half of its current valuation because people were worried about its spending trends. And so it shows you just how quickly sentiment can shift with respect to uh, even a large and established name like this. So is that does that mean buy Meta today or does that mean sell it given that these things are fickle and you have no idea whether Threads is going to be a success or a flop? No, look, we, we, we are long-term shareholders at First Eagle. Our average holding period is close to a decade. And, and you know, we feel that the, the company remains uh, uh, rationally valued here. Uh, and it has the opportunity for um, more growth ahead. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're long-term holders of, of our investment here in, in Meta. Yeah. I also want to ask you about the bond market. You say the U.S. bond market is sending more worrying signals. We heard some of this from Dom Chu at the top of the hour, but I wonder if you'd elaborate on that and explain what it is that you're seeing there that's worrying you. Yeah. So, you know, look, when I think about what the equity market's pricing, uh, I think the fixed income market is sending very different signals. Uh, we have a deeply inverted deal curve. Uh, somewhat of an indicator of uh, recession. Uh, beyond that, we see spreads uh, widening uh, for corporate uh, uh, credits and, and, and particular subsegments of the corporate credit market, say the CLO market, are essentially shut down. And so the bond market, on the one hand, is saying, um, you know, inflation is set to return to normal. On the other hand, I think it's implying that the path to get there um, could be more challenging than the equity market is pricing at, at this point in time. And I think one of the things that potentially explains this tension uh, between the equity market and the bond market is that everyone's very focused on monetary policy, but I think there hasn't been enough focus on fiscal policy. The budget deficit expanded from just under 4% of GDP last July yeah. to just under 8% of GDP. And so we've seen a massive fiscal expansion. And I think 
that raises the uh, the risk of longer term stagflation risk uh, if it's not addressed. And I think um, it, it, in some ways, the resilience that we've seen in the corporate sector may have some uh, illusory uh, fiscal nature to it. Boy, I tell you what, you say if it's not addressed, but uh, that fiscal issue, I mean, I live in Washington. I don't see either party uh, anytime soon coming up with massive spending cuts to deal with that fiscal issue. I mean, it's just both parties have shown that when they're in power, they spend money. That's just how you win votes in, in this political world that we live in. I think that's one. If you're flagging that as a long-term concern, that's something that we got to pay attention to long-term. Well, it, it's, a, it's a definite concern because if you have an out-of-control fiscal picture, it raises the possibility of stagflation. And we know from the 1970s that stagflation was very bad for equity market valuations. Uh, and, and so, you know, the policymakers here have a trade-off between recession risk on the one hand and stagflation risk on the, lo uh, on the other hand if they do nothing about the current policy settings. And so I think this does need to be focused on uh, and, and it is a reason why, uh, you know, in First Eagle, we have a potential hedge in gold in our portfolios and why we're willing to diversify internationally into markets that trade at lower valuations and that are, you know, pricing to some extent a less than perfect economic reality. OK, good. Something else to worry about. Thanks, Matt McLennan. Appreciate your time. Meantime, well, mortgage you. rates are shooting higher. Diana Olick is in D.C. and she has the details. Hey, Diana. Hey, Eamon. Yeah, the average rate on the 30-year fix jumped 14 basis points today to 7.22%, thanks to that much stronger than expected ADP jobs report. That's the highest rate since last November. Rates had already begun rising last week, crossing over that critical 7% line, and that had a direct effect on mortgage demand. Applications for a mortgage to purchase a home, which had been rising for three straight weeks, dropped 5% for the week and were 22% lower than the same week one year ago. Interesting, though, the average loan size for a purchase application dropped to its lowest level since January of this year, and that was likely driven by a drop in home buying in some of the higher-priced markets and then more activity on the lower end. Now, applications to refinance a home loan fell 4% for the week and were 30% lower than the same week a year ago. Earlier today on Squawk Box, the CEO of Compass Real Estate, Robert Refkin, said 7% is now the new normal and people are accepting it. Now, that remains to be seen, especially given that home prices are heating up again. Tomorrow's Labor Department jobs report could also impact rates, but it may, of course, have been upstaged by the news today. Eamon. Diana, thanks. Whew, 7% the new normal. Coming up, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen kicking off her first trip to China since taking office. What's on the agenda and what would real progress look like? Atlantic Council CEO Fred Kemp joins us next. And speaking of China, Tesla and its EV rivals there just signed a pledge to end the price war and promote core socialist values. Is this part of the tightrope that Elon Musk has to walk as a multinational company doing business in China? We're going to ask former Ford and Hertz CEO Mark Fields. And as we head to break, here's another quick check on the markets with the Dow off its session low of 517 points, down, down about 400 now. The S&P and NASDAQ both down about a percent. The Russell down nearly 2 percent and the 10-year yield back above 4 percent. The exchange coming right back after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen kicking off her first trip to China since taking office. And tensions between the two countries arguably couldn't be any higher right now. Emily Wilkins is in Washington with the White House's expectations for the trip. Eunice Yoon is in Beijing with how the first day went and what's next. And Atlantic Council CEO Fred Kemp is here with the policy implications that investors are going to need to know. Emily, I haven't even gotten a chance to welcome you to the Washington, D.C. Bureau, but I will as soon as I get down there in person. But let's start with you. Well, I'm very much looking forward to finally meeting you in person. Uh, but Yellen's trip, it's really part of this bigger effort by the Biden administration uh, to strengthen lines of communication with uh, Beijing. The administration has downplayed expectations for this trip, saying that it does not expect any specific policy breakthroughs, but it wants to lay the groundwork for future communications. And it's a similar to message to what we heard when Secretary of State Anthony Blinken went to China last month. Yellen tweeted that President Biden has charged his administration with deepening connection between the two countries on a range of issues, which she looks to forward during uh, during her time in China. Uh, she further tweeted that she would take action to protect U.S. national security interests when needed, saying that the trip presents an opportunity to communicate and avoid miscommunication and misunderstanding. The secretary outlined some of her own goals for meetings with top-level officials, including protecting human rights, diversifying supply chains, and working together on areas like climate and debt issues. She has also been adamant that the administration does not support a decoupling of U.S. and China interests. Yellen likely won't be the last member of Biden's cabinet to head to China. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is considering a trip to China to meet with her counterparts as well. Yeah, it has been cabinet palooza in China for the Biden administration in recent weeks, and it looks like more to come. Any talk about China limiting exports of those rare earth minerals earlier this week? They are expecting that this will be coming up at some point during Yellen's trip. Um, obviously, she's a little bit concerned at what this could mean for supply chains. These rare earth minerals are used in a lot of computer chips and what that could mean. But she also just wants to understand a little bit more about what China's thinking here. This isn't a full ban. It's simply they're putting limitations on it. So getting a better sense of what that actually is going to mean. Emily, thank you. Good to see you. Uh, so that's what the White House is hoping for. But how is her trip being perceived so far in Beijing? We've got global coverage and Eunice Yoon has more on that. Thanks, Eamon. Well, Treasury Secretary Yellen has a long day ahead of her on Friday. A senior Treasury official said that on her first day of meetings with Chinese officials, she's going to start off with a sit-down with the former Vice Premier Liu He. He's the man who negotiated the trade deal with the U.S., uh, with the Trump administration for China. And then he's going to attend, she's going to attend a business roundtable that's hosted by AmCham China. She's going to have a bilateral 
with the Premier, Li Chang, and then be treated to a dinner hosted by the former PBOC or Central Bank Governor Zhou Shaochuan. Now, for the Chinese side, uh, based on official commentary as well as state media reports, the Chinese have suggested that they are seeking what they call signs of U.S. sincerity. So that is some combination of either reducing or canceling the Trump-era tariffs on Chinese goods, lifting sanctions on Chinese companies and individuals, and ending the export curbs. Now, Yellen is viewed here as a pragmatic person, a sympathetic ear. Uh, she has previously said that uh, she wasn't so sure about the, uh, about the benefits of uh, the tariffs um, and also has called a decoupling uh, something that the Chinese also don't really like, disastrous. Uh, she's also said that she's coming here looking to find common ground, and that's exactly what the Chinese would like to do as well. Amen? Eunice, so interesting what you flagged here, because based on the schedule, it looks as though, as though she's meeting more with officials who used to be in their jobs, the former officials, rather than those who are currently in their jobs. And, you know, in Washington, this is true also. Sometimes the real power source is the people who are the formers, not the people who are just getting up to speed in the jobs right now. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, it came up in the, um, when the, uh, sen the senior uh, Treasury official had come and briefed reporters. Uh, people were asking, you know, isn't that kind of unusual that she would be doing it? And uh, that official had said that actually they, they didn't feel that it was unusual at all, that these are uh, close friends, people that she knows well and yeah. also who are very well known within international financial circles. Uh, but uh, one thing that is to, you know, important to keep in mind is that she is here through the weekend, and the expectation is still there that she's going to meet with President Xi Jinping's new economic team. Yeah, that's fascinating, Eunice. Really appreciate it. Janet Yellen, definitely uh, a long history there. Uh, my next guest says Treasury Secretary Yellen's visit to China is all about damage control, not a new dawn for relations or anything like that. Joining me now is Fred Kemp. He is the president and CEO of the Atlantic Council and a CNBC contributor. Fred, you say that like it's a bad thing almost. You know, this is not a new dawn for relations. This is just about damage control. But it kind of makes me feel like damage control is what we need right now. This relationship has been deteriorating so much over the past couple of months, hasn't it? Hey, Eamon, I couldn't agree more with you. I, I, I think the damage control is an end of itself. And part of the damage control is for Janet Yellen, and she's talked about this a lot, have closer relationships. Uh, she has close relationships from her time in the Fed in China, but she doesn't have relationships with the new team that she's dealing with as Treasury Secretary. So she's underscored that she really needs to just get to know these people and talk to them. Uh, we're getting signals from Treasury. They don't expect any breakthroughs on any of the different fronts. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Sorry? Go, go ahead. I want to ask you that. But I'm just going to put a pin in that idea of what they expect in terms of breakthroughs, but keep finish your sentence. Well, they're trying to, I think from the U.S. side, they're trying to calm waters. Uh, we're in a geopolitically and uh, geoeconomically incredibly fragile, volatile period. It's the worst stage uh, Chinese-U.S. relations have ever been in. But look at it from the Chinese side. People say, well, the Chinese are saying that we're involved in economic political suppression. So why would you want to meet with us at this time? Well, all you have to do is look at the statistics. You have uh, a 20 percent uh, trade fall. Uh, uh, sorry, 20 percent uh, youth unemployment. You have exports shrinking by 7.5 percent. Last year, you had foreign direct investment. <coughs> this is a huge number, Eamon. Foreign direct investment fall by 72 percent to 42.5 yeah, billion dollars. That's huge. What's happening is 
global investors, not just U.S. investors, also European investors, are getting more and more wary and more and more worried about investing in China. They're at 5.3 percent growth, says the IMF, but uh, other forecasters are downgrading them. So we want to calm waters. The U.S. wants to calm waters. Certainly Biden doesn't want a crisis uh, uh, on top of the Russia crisis uh, when he goes into an election year. And from the China side, they have to put a floor under their economic decline and start building up again and, and start growing again at paces they were growing before. So you raised this question. I put a pin in it. This this idea that uh, Treasury is sort of avoiding saying exactly what the deliverables are going to be. I can tell you, as a reporter covering these kinds of trips over the years, what you try to do in the week before the trip is get out of the officials that you're covering what their sense is of the deliverables uh, from that trip. You want to know what are they going to get out of this. They always try to avoid telling you that because they want to uh, under-promise and over-deliver. But let me put you on the spot with that same question. What do you think a win here for Janet Yellen would look like? What are the deliverables uh, in the win column if, if she can get them? Uh, so we'll have to see what they say in whatever communique or press release. But we, what we know she'll want to do is she'll want to get uh, a little bit of a read on the Chinese economic outlook. If it's really as bad as it seems, 5.3 percent and going down, then the global economic outlook depends on that. And also U.S. growth can be influenced by that as well. Can she the get, other let, thing let me just, is she'll, let me just ask a question on that. The, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but let me just ask a question on that. Can, can she get real information while she's there? I mean, you know, you've seen these trips. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance. She's going to be surrounded and buffeted by Chinese officials who are, you know, meeting and greeting all day long, every day. Is she going to have access to real on the ground economic information about what's going on in China while she's there? Uh, it's going to be trade for trade. What do you have to show us? And we'll show yep. you. Uh, there's no doubt that the Chinese have been obfuscating more than they used to on, on their trade figures. But they're more likely to tell Janet Yellen than they are to tell you and me. Oh, that's interesting. OK, so so the big win is just information. Yeah, but then technology. I think okay. the, the, the fight, the struggle, the competition for the commanding heights in technology is really what this is all about right now. The, the Chinese implemented these or announced these new sanctions to be implemented August 1st on uh, words. I mean, I, I, I didn't know about these, uh, these, these two elements of semiconductors that they put export controls on over the weekend, geranium and granium or whatever. But at least I've been reading about them now. But this was a shot across the bow as she comes in, and it's a shot across the bow to answer the restrictions we've been putting on semiconductors and also cloud computing. They're afraid that's going to come. So she'll want to know what are your plans for decoupling? What are your plans for cutting off technology exports? How's that going to affect our supply side? And they're going to want to know, well, what further, uh, what further restrictions are you going to put on uh, U.S. technology exports to us? And so, again, I'm not sure how much of that's going to show up in a communique, but that may be the most sensitive and the most important part of the whole communication. Yeah, so she might walk out of there with some information about what's going on really in the Chinese economy right now and maybe what the Chinese government's plans are to do next. Uh, really great insights. Thank you, Fred Kemp, uh, with the Atlantic Council for your time today. And coming up, you can't spell threads without ads. So now that Meta's so-called Twitter killer is out, what's the scuttlebutt in the advertising world? And will big brands be willing to pay up for another social media platform? We're going to debate that one. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Microsoft and United Health, the only stocks in the green right now. You can see them on the upper left there. Markets well off session lows. The exchange back after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. 
<clears throat> the UP Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson with a CNBC News update. Houston police confirmed this afternoon that the Texas teen who was allegedly missing for the past eight years was at home the whole time. Rudy Ferreas made national headlines over the weekend when it was reported he'd been located safe, but was nonverbal and unable to communicate. Police say they're unsure of his mother's motivation for maintaining that he was missing for so long. OceanGate says it is suspending all exploration and commercial operations following the deadly tourist descent to the wreckage of the Titanic. The Coast Guard says the OceanGate-operated sub imploded about 1,600 feet uh, from the bow of the ship. All five people on board died, including OceanGate CEO Stockton Rush. And New York City is about to receive $6.8 billion from the federal government to build a new tunnel. The most ever for a mass transit project, the rail tunnel will be built under the Hudson River and will parallel a pair of single-track tunnels built back in 1910. Project officials say the current tunnels are deteriorating because of their age and saltwater exposure during Superstorm Sandy in 2012. Eamon, back to you. Tyler, thanks. It feels like we're due for a new tunnel or two I around think so. here, it's right? about time. Yeah, absolutely. 1910, 19. that's a while ago. Coming up, former Ford CEO Mark Fields is here. He's going to weigh in on the apparent price war truce between Tesla and its rival EV makers in China, the fallout for investors. That's next. The Exchange is back right after this. And welcome back to The Exchange. Elon Musk's Tesla has joined Chinese automakers in a deal to rein in prices, signaling a truce in the EV market price wars. Tesla and its Chinese rivals pledging to maintain fair competition and avoid abnormal pricing to help stabilize the market for consumers. This comes after Tesla began slashing prices earlier this year in the face of rising competition. So for more on all that, let's bring in somebody who knows about this market, Mark Fields. He's the former Ford CEO and a CNBC contributor. Mark, first question I have for you, I look at this, it's fascinating, and I think, man, if you did this in the United States, you'd have a federal antitrust investigation in about five minutes, wouldn't you? Absolutely. I mean, talk about antitrust violations, about uh, trying to coordinate pricing. Right. Yeah, this would not fly in the U.S. I mean, this is literally the automakers getting together and setting a floor for prices. Yeah, exactly. Well, listen, at the end of the day, this was pushed by the Chinese government and Tesla's competitors, in particular, the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, because, you know, they basically told the China uh, Dealer or Association of Automobile Manufacturers, listen, you guys got to get together. Tesla, you started this price war. The health of the automotive uh, infrastructure and ecosystem in China is extremely important. We as the government have put a lot of policies in place this year to support it. And we can't afford to have our own Chinese uh, homegrown competitors uh, continue to burn through cash and have a price destruction. But so I'll tell you what. Mark, as an investor, I would look at this and say, well, this might be a signal that Tesla can't win in China, right? Because the thumb is on the scale for the homegrown competitors. The government is literally saying to Tesla, stop doing the things you need to do to win in China. Well, in my view, this is bad news for, for, for Tesla because it basically handcuffs them. If right. you think about it, their Chinese competitors are coming out with very, very good product. And the reasons that Tesla took the price cuts earlier this year is because they were losing market share. 
So when you take that pricing lever away, the good news for Tesla is their margins will be better because they won't be cutting their pricing. The bad news is their market share will continue to go down and their volume could continue to struggle, which means their plant will be running at under capacity, which is going to be a big drain on them because that's their biggest plant. I'll tell you what, I just finished a documentary on Chinese corporate espionage against American companies. It's airing, here's the plug, it's airing regularly on CNBC these days. Uh, but in that documentary, one of the experts that we interviewed said that he was in China talking to auto suppliers, the people who supply parts to Tesla in China. And he said one of those companies told him a Chinese competitor of Tesla came to them and said, give us the same parts that you give to Tesla. Exactly the same. We'll fit them into our cars. So if that's the environment that you're operating in in Tesla, they're telling you you can't do your own pricing strategy. Your competitors are buying your parts from your own suppliers. How can you possibly make any headway there? Well, listen, they, they have a decent business there. It is their biggest market. And even there is there is a lot of value to Tesla worldwide to competing in China, not only because of economies of scale, but when you're facing the most competitive competitors in China, which they are right now, they can take those learnings and use them in other markets. But the bottom line is they the Chinese government you know, with this agreement basically just made it a lot harder for their business. And, you know, the visit that Musk made about two, three weeks ago wasn't to just sit down and have tea. It was the government saying you will probably do this or you're going to face some consequences. Yeah, you know, I flagged this in the intro. They use this term abnormal pricing. They say we want to avoid abnormal pricing. Uh, but the but Tesla's been doing some abnormal pricing here in the United States, which has gotten its competitors here a little bit worried, right? I mean, they, they've done this price cut strategy here. Are their prices here abnormal? Well, they're, they're looking at it. They're, first off, they have pricing freedom, right? They're looking at their business. And all, Elon has basically said, listen, I'm willing to sacrifice margins for volume because the EV market is growing. Uh, the established competitors are just introducing products now. So it's a little bit of a land grab. And, you know, he's making, for, from his perspective, for Tesla, uh, a rational business judgment. But you can't do that now in China because of these handcuffs that are placed on him. Now, keep in mind, even this pledge was non-binding. So, you know, Tesla may decide at a certain point, well, I don't pull know. the plug out of the grenade and, you know, let it explode. I don't know. From there. You do a deal but with the Chinese knows? government. It's pretty binding, isn't it? Well, when they say, uh, you know, you have complete freedom to follow this or not, yeah. uh, they say <laughs> that with a wink and a nod. Yeah. I bet. Mark Fields, thank you for your expertise. The stakes here absolutely couldn't be higher. Really appreciate it. Uh, still ahead, Meta's Twitter competitor Threads has officially launched and is off to a good start. But what comes next? It's all about ads. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to The Exchange. Meta moving lower with the rest of the market, but outperforming its social media peers today and coming off a 52-week high after launching its Twitter-like messaging app, which they're calling Threads. CEO Mark Zuckerberg saying on Threads that it's already surpassed 30 million signups as of this morning. He says, feels like the beginning of something special, but we've got a lot of work ahead to build out the app. Julia Borston joins me now. Julia, this is a fascinating move in the blockbuster fight between these two tech titans, and I want we had Jim Cramer on CNBC earlier today saying the key for Meta is going to be bundling this in in terms of advertising with all their other products. So do you think it's scalable in that way or is there some other secret sauce here to making money on threads for Zuckerberg? 
Oh, well, as soon as Meta is ready to put ads on this platform, there certainly will be advertisers ready to buy those ads. Advertisers want to go where the people are, right? They yep. want to chase the eyeballs. And so I think the fact that it's been able to grow to 30 million uh, downloads so quickly means that they're on, they're on track to grow, um, to, to continue growing here. They did say they're not going to put ads on right away. As soon as they are ready, they have a distinct advantage here. They're not just going to be targeting you ads based on what content you're interacting with on threads. They also have information about who you are on Instagram and what types of products and content you interact with on Instagram and what you like on Instagram. So they could use all of that to target ads at you as a threads user that will be incredibly um, intentional and potentially far more valuable than what you're going to get if you have less information about the user. So all that data is very valuable there, Amen. Yeah, I've seen Twitter loyalists out there defending Twitter saying, hey, wait a second, Threads is gathering up all of your information. But do consumers really make their decision on privacy anymore? It feels like, you know, that ship has sailed. We've all just kind of agreed that all of our privacy is lost forever, right? I mean, if you're if you're using any of the social platforms such as Meta or Instagram, you understand. And frankly, if you're using any platform, you understand that you're getting targeted ads based on your behavior on that platform. That's simply how it works. And you should enjoy it if the ads are more valuable for you as a result. I think there is an interesting conversation to be had, though, about whether people use Instagram in a very different way than they use Twitter and whether it will take some time, as some of my ad industry sources have indicated, it might take some time to build up the same kind of audience or or sort of rapport with your followers on this new Threads platform as you have on Twitter. So a lot of people have told me I use Instagram. For one thing, Instagram is not real time. I use Twitter in a very real time way. It's all about news and, and politics and that type of content. Instagram is more about vacation and family. And so I think the question is whether Threads becomes a third thing, maybe a hybrid of these two, or yeah. if it can recreate that real time newsy breaking news element um, of Twitter um, and help people find a new audience for that there. Because it may be a different type of follower base than you're looking for, that yeah, you're looking I, for rather than what you have on Instagram. I'll tell you how I've been using it. I've been soliciting on threads nicknames for the cage match between Musk and Zuckerberg, you know, that we think is going to happen. You know, we had the Rumble in the Jungle, the Thrilla in Manila, if you're a boxing fan. Uh, what is this one going to be called? I said it should be called the Rage in Middle Age. Uh, but one of my threads followers, Tom Teague, said he thinks it should be called the Fray by the Bay. So there is some creativity out there on threads already. Julia Borson, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Still ahead, there's been a lot of talk about the lag effect of interest rate hikes. But my next guest says it's already being felt in the economy and on Main Street. And if today's moves in the bond market are any indication, could that pain get worse? We'll talk about it next. And welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks down today, but well-off session lows right now. But it's the bond market where we're seeing some really big moves today. The two-year Treasury yield hitting the highest level in 16 years on the heels of stronger-than-expected weekly job data. And 16 years ago, that was the great financial crisis just around the corner. So are we not paying enough attention to the warning signs the bond market is flashing before our very eyes right now? With us is CNBC contributor Peter Bookvar. He's the chief investment officer at Bleakley Financial Group. Group, along with our very own uh, Dom Chu. Both of you, thank you for being here. Peter, what do you make of this? So yields are back to where they were right before SVB collapsed, when the market assumed that the Fed was going to continue to raise rates. And then, of course, what happened with the banks, that dissipated. And now we're right back. But back then, the S&P 500 was around 4,000, 4,100. Here we are, 4,400, with really no change in earnings expectations relative to then to here. 
on the cusp of an earnings receipt, and that's going to be, I think, an interesting reality check. Is that a sign that, that investors are confident that the banks have cleaned up their act and that there are no more problems out there? Or is it just sort of the narrative faded and we've moved on and it's attention deficit disorder marketing? I think there's some confidence that we're not going to see any more major bank failures. But I think that the confidence is dissipating in terms of the economic impact of higher interest rates and how banks have reined it in in terms of credit extension. And it's not just banks. It's the IPO calendar, notwithstanding a few over the past couple of weeks. It's VC funding. It's leveraged loan funding. I mean, there is a credit dry up, credit dry up that's happening yeah. where the government essentially is crowding out the private sector because people are putting their money in treasuries and money market funds. Dom, you were talking about the bond market at the top of the show. We sure. had Diana Olick on talking about housing, uh, mortgage rates at 7%, that being sort of the new normal right now. Um, boy, you wonder what that means for buyers. Uh, it, it's not, I mean... The interesting part about the housing dynamic right now, and it's something that Diana has spoken a lot about, is interest rates are at very much the, the center of what's going on right now. Yeah. But the real estate market is right now constrained because there just aren't deals getting done. There's, there's no supply of housing out there. Those right. people who are in homes and are already borrowing to finance them are staying in those homes. I'll tell you what, I, I've done almost no smart financial things in my life, but one of the ones that I did was refinancing at 3% in December of 2021. Right. If you've got a two I think I'm living in that house for, until I die, right? Correct. I mean, there's no way I can sell. You're not the only person who feels that way. And, and so it's also changing some of the way that demographics work, because normally what you have people doing is when their kids kind of get older and leave the house, they might downsize, right? They, they might try to find something smaller, cash out, and go somewhere else. Yeah. The problem right now is there's nothing to move into. And even if you did and you had to borrow a little bit more, you're borrowing at much higher rates. So it, it's changed the entire, even in some of the neighborhoods and suburban metropolitan areas yeah. where schools are important. Yeah. If you look at the dynamic there, it's curious, right? Because people are no longer leaving their homes once their kids get out of school. They're staying there. They can't afford to downsize. They can't, they can't afford to which downsize. Which is crazy. Which is a little bit weird. So there's a very shifting dynamic right now. And I'm not sure that it's straight just because of rates doing what they're doing, there's also a change in behavior. But Peter, this is what the Fed wants, right? They want to see this kind of change in behavior, otherwise they wouldn't be raising rates. Well, textbook-wise, you raise interest rates, you slow down the housing market, yep. you see a decline in home prices to mitigate the rise in mortgage rates. We haven't seen that. Home prices have not fallen as mortgage rates have. So the housing market is actually sort of upside down from that perspective. Yeah. So the Fed's actions, and you go back over 20 years of them keeping rates low that choose the housing market, the housing market's actually kind of not doing what they wanted them to because home prices are not falling. That's We're not loosening the opportunity for people to buy homes because home prices are high, mortgage That's, rates are high. It's almost a stagflationary situation in the housing market. You know, we, we ran out of time with Diana earlier, but one of the questions I wanted to ask her is, who are these buyers at 7%, right? I mean, who are the people who are getting in saying, well, I just, I have to buy right now? Well, they're, 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 it's new home buyers, right? That's and the only place you're finding them. Yeah. Right, and, and, and by the way, the, the real estate market's not the only place that you're finding this paying up or paying higher multiples. Look at the stock market over the course of the last six to nine months where yeah. interest rates have been steadily climbing and yet multiples, the amount of money people are willing to pay for a stock keeps rising along with the number for earnings. And by the way, Eamon, this is going to be curious. Yeah. Did you know that right now the S&P trades at roughly 19 times next year's expected earnings, which wow. is right where it was in February of 2020 before the pandemic. Just a couple of seconds left, but same question to you as on the housing market. Who are these buyers then who are saying, you know what, this is the price for me? Well, the incremental side of things- They're not new stock buyers, right? 
Well, they could be because okay. the, the flows are still moving into certain mutual funds. But the, the valuation story is one where if people are still chasing something, they feel like they have to get in. That's something that they have to have to watch out. And by the way, I tweeted out the chart of the forward PE on both threads and Twitter at the domino. You can see. For I'm going to follow you on threads. Peter, last go. five seconds to you. Well, home builders are able to buy down people's mortgages. So if you're buying a new home, you're not paying the 7%. You may be getting a teaser rate from the builder. Got to go. Peter Bookvar, Dom Chu, thank you so much. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.